Welcome to North Main Podcast, a production of North Main Street Church of God in Butler, Pennsylvania. This podcast brings you North Main's messages every week and inspires you to know Christ intimately, grow in Christ continually, and go for Christ daily. I invite you to listen in today as we explore the Bible and learn about its timeless truth for living life God's way. Let's listen to Pastor Brandon as he brings us today's message. This morning, we've been going through the final stages of Jesus' life on this earth. He had uh, grown up uh, near Jerusalem, just north of Jerusalem, a town called Nazareth in Galilee. Galilee is like a region. Nazareth is one of those cities within that region. Uh, Not actually one of the great places to come from. So um, think of a place around here or around where you grew up that you'd like, ugh, Nobody would ever want to live there, okay? And think of people that you would stereotype that would come from that place. Nazareth was one of those places that nobody wanted to be from, and Jesus grew up there. He was born in Bethlehem, spent the first two years of his life in Egypt, and when they came back from Egypt after being in exile, uh, Mary and Joseph moved to Nazareth, which is where it seems that they originally had planted roots. And Jesus was raised there uh, under the uh, leadership of his stepfather, Joseph, who taught him the family trade of carpentry. Carpentry wasn't just nailing wood. It was everything to do with masonry, carpentry, roof, anything that went along with it, basic construction. And so that's the trade Jesus learned. But Jesus knew from a very early age that he was called to something more because God had birthed in him this purpose because God was who he was. Who was Jesus? Jesus was God in the flesh. We know him as the Son of God. We know him as the second person of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And Jesus, being very God himself, didn't consider equality with God something to be attained. So he emptied himself of some of the glory that he had from the beginning of time so that he can take on human flesh and dwell among us. That's what Paul tells us in Philippians chapter two and what John tells us in the gospel of John chapter one. So we get this picture of God stepping out of eternity and into time, taking on human flesh, dwelling among us and doing what you and I could never do for ourselves. You know what that is? We could never save ourselves, first off. Secondly, we can't be perfect. I said this a few weeks ago and stumbled over the words. Let me try to say it today without stumbling over the words. Romans 3, 23. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In 1 John, which is another letter by John later in the New Testament, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John are letters in there. In 1 John, uh, John reminds us that you can't say that you have not sinned because that means you're calling God a liar. There's only one perfect person who has ever lived on the face of the earth, and that person is Jesus Christ, blameless, spotless, without sin. But why was he crucified? Last week, we looked at how he was betrayed and arrested. 
We looked at it as he came down through the Kidron Valley where the wash off from the, the daily sacrifices on Passover would have come down through that valley in the creek, still stained with blood from over 250,000 lambs that were slain on Passover. And now he's arrested and he's standing trial. But who's he standing trial in front of? The high priest, the Sanhedrin, which is the Supreme Court of the Jewish Council. And so that's where we go today. I'll give you a chance to turn there. It's not going to be on your screen just yet, but we'll be in John chapter 18 again this morning, starting with verse 19, and we'll skip a little bit around in there, but John chapter 18, starting with verse 19. Go ahead and turn there if you get a chance to. We live in what's called a postmodern era. How many of you know the definition of postmodernism? So it's a philosophical idea. Some of you may know, some of you may not know. As a part of my education in my undergrad in, in church ministry and, and, and theology and in my master's degree in theology, we had to study philosophy. And all the philosophers, well, most of the philosophers uh, of the past couple hundred centuries or more, uh, plus some that are way back in the Greek era, uh, BC. But there's this thing that came up around the 1800s and it had happened a little bit earlier than that called postmodernism. Postmodernism uh, really is this philo philosophical belief that there is no real absolute definitive truth, there's no real center, and there are no boundaries. That's what postmodernism is. If you look at our culture today, it is racked with signs and symbols of postmodernism. It's this idea that I can do what I want to do when I want to do it. You can do what you want to do when you want to do it. And we shouldn't be judged for it. We sh there should be no ramifications for it. What you say is truth is good for you. What I say is truth is good for me. Let's all just get along. But we, we have to come to grips with the fact that where there are no boundaries, there's chaos. Where there is no law, of right and wrong. There is destruction. What you say is right for you may be good for you for a while, but if what you say is right for you is only good for you, you may find out that it was actually wrong all along unless it was founded in the truth, which is what we're going to get to today. A person can either love the truth or their version of the truth, and unless their version of the truth aligns with the actual truth, both can't coexist. Does this make sense? It's really philosophical. I'm going to break it down. We'll make it a little bit more understandable as we go into this passage of Scripture today. This idea of postmodernism comes from a guy. He's not the only guy that promoted it. But have you ever heard of a guy named Friedrich Nietzsche? German philosopher. He's the guy who coined the term, God is dead. Now, in his book, uh, Thus Spoke Zarathustra, who, which promotes this naturalist, godless society, there's a guy in this book called the Madman. And the Madman comes into town, and he starts talking about what the world is going to look like if we erase God from the picture. If there is no God, then is the horizon going to wipe away? Will the lights all darken? What will happen if we proclaim there is no God? 
See, Nietzsche knew the ramifications of claiming there is no God and living fully into that concept in this naturalistic postmodern idea would mean to erase all sense of morality, would mean to erase all sense of structure, all sense of law, all sense of boundaries. Nietzsche himself, who promoted this ideal, knew that it was dangerous. But the philosophers, teachers of our day and age continue to perpetuate Nietzsche and others like him, Engels and Marx and several others, as these lords and gods, if you will, of this postmodern society, that they are the ones whom we should be following because it's all by science and reason. But with postmodernism, it's not by science and reason, it's about what you feel. And how many of you know feelings can be fickle? I might feel like a hamburger today, not physically. I, I know I look like one or I've had too many, but I might feel like having a hamburger today and tomorrow I might feel like having a hot dog. I might feel like I love somebody today, but tomorrow the feelings of love might be there. Does it mean that I don't love them? See, feelings can be very fickle. Feelings and emotions are there given by God to accentuate the realities of the moment, but they are not the driving force for truth. Truth, regardless of feelings and emotions, is established not in a concept, but in a person we know as Jesus. Jesus said, in John chapter 14, verse 16, as he was talking to his disciples, this has been kind of the theme verse for this month. Jesus told his disciples, I am the way, I'm the truth, and I'm the life. No one can come to the Father except by me or through me. What does he mean by that? Well, if Jesus by his very essence is the way, then what does that mean? Which way should we go? Through him. Well, what is his way? We have to read the word to know where he went, what he did, how he led, how he loved. We can't go the way of Christ unless we know Christ. And knowing Christ intimately, which is one of our first parts of our, our mission statement is coming into a relationship with him. Knowing him intimately isn't just, oh yeah, I know about him. It's this idea and concept of the Jewish word to know, which is yada, means I intimately know him as if I know my, like I know my spouse. It's the same terminology I've mentioned before, that Adam knew Eve and they beget children. It's, this, it's not sexual, but it's this kind of intimacy that is so intertwined with knowing each other completely. Jesus is the way, and to know him is to know the way to where he is. Jesus is the truth. He is the very, uh, the very epitome of truth. What is truth, you might ask? To know Christ is to know the truth. If you know Christ, then you know the essence to most of the answers this life has to offer. And the reason I say most is because we don't know all the answers to everything perfectly. It's just not possible this side of heaven. But it is possible to know the truth that can set you free from sin and death. 
How do I know the truth? I have to be intimately connected with the truth. I have to be growing in the truth. Who is Christ? What did Christ leave us? In his great commission, he says in Matthew 28, verses 19 through 20, you, my followers, go make disciples of all nations. What is a disciple? It's a student, it's a learner, somebody who's continuing to grow. You go make disciples of all peoples in all places. This is a mandate, it's not a suggestion. Go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. This is bringing them to this intimate knowledge of Christ so that they say, Jesus is my Lord and I believe in him and I believe he rose from the grave. Baptizing them and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Well, if, if Jesus tells his followers to teach others what he taught them, then he's left us something to learn. Where do we find Jesus' teachings? It's in Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47, where they studied the apostles' teaching. What were the apostles' teaching? Well, they actually wrote those teachings down. The early church that studied the apostles' teaching daily, together. We do it once a week, and if you're a part of a small group or a class, you might do it twice. They did it daily, together. They saw it so important to be growing as a community of faith daily, together that they would study the apostles' teaching. What was the apostles' teaching? Well, we've had them written down by authors known as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They give us a record of Jesus' life on this earth, what he taught, how he lived, and how he loved, and how we are to follow him the way he lived his life. When he says, come follow me, that's what he's talking about. He's not just saying, hey, just, uh, hey, we're going to go over here. We're going to have a meal and do this thing. He, when he's saying, come follow me, he's saying, I want you to leave your old life, and I want you to start a new life with me. That's what he did when he called his first 12 disciples. He's the way, he's the truth, and he's the life. Guess what? We're going to look at a, a passage in Colossians this morning in just a few minutes. How is Jesus' life? Where do we see evidence of Jesus being life? Well, all the way back in Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 1, how did everything find its being in creation? God spoke it into existence. When you say, well, where's Jesus in the very first chapter of the Bible? What does John tell us in his gospel, the very first sentence of, of his gospel? In the beginning was the word. The word was with God, the word was God. So Jesus was in the beginning with God, the Father. We know the Spirit, it says, was hovering over the deep. We have Father, Son, and Spirit all together in majesty and power and authority and might all together in perfect unity, not fighting against each other, but working together as God, the Father, Son, and Spirit. And the Son is spoken through the Father to bring everything into existence. And Paul reminds us in Colossians that everything finds its existence in him and through him and for him. In 
everything Christ holds all things together. This isn't some philosophical mumbo-jumbo. This is a reality to the world we live in. And when we come to know the truth that can set us free from sin and death, who is Christ himself and the foundation of everything in the world except for evil itself, God, through Jesus Christ, gave us a glimpse into who he is and to remind us of who he was and is to come. John chapter 18. That was not meant to be that long. I didn't even have that in my notes. I apologize. Let's move on. <laughs> Starting with verse, did I say 18 or 19? <clears throat> if you remember last week, Jesus was arrested as he was coming through the Kidron Valley on the outside of Jerusalem's uh, walls. And this, uh, he was up on the Mount of Olives in an in actual garden there called Gethsemane. He had been praying that night and had wanted his disciples to pray with him, but they kept falling asleep. And so Jesus is praying this prayer. If this be your will, let this cup pass from me, and not my will, your will be done. He knows he's getting ready to encounter the most difficult experience of his lifetime. And he's asking God the Father, if there's any other way than through the cross, please let it be. But not my will, your will be done. And, and let me give you this little caveat too, this little side note. We, we as Christians, at least most Christian traditions that I'm aware of, proclaim that Jesus is the only way to the Father. And the reason we proclaim that is not to be exclusive, not, not to, you know, say, oh, look at us, we're better than anybody else. But let's be honest, if there was any other way, do you think God would have provided it? I think he would have. I don't think God is sadistic. I don't think he's mean or cruel. I don't think he's masochistic. I think he is a good God, a loving God, a God who is just. But I think he, he wants what's best for us, and he knows what's best for us. But he also knows there is no other way that sin can be atoned for, yours and mine. When we mess up, when we royally flub up and do things we shouldn't do, there's only one way. And Jesus was saying, God, if there's any other way that we can take care of the sin problem and the death problem that started so long ago, then let it be, but not my will, your will be done. And what he's saying is, if it's through other gods, if we can do multiple gods and multiple sacrifices, if there's any other way. But you know what he did that night in the garden? He got up realizing there was no other way knowing that the will of the Father was that he would have to go the route of the cross to be the once and for all final sacrifice for sin and for death. No more animals. Let's get rid of the animal sacrifice thing. This has to be atoned for once and for all. We want to put a cap on this. There needs to be a new covenant in the blood of Jesus Christ. And see, Jesus knew that when he was having the Last Supper with his disciples, when he lifted the cup that night and said, take and drink all of you, for this is the blood of the new covenant poured out for the sins of many. I think he was just one last dish effort before he was arrested saying, God, is there any other way? If there's not, I'm willing to do whatever it takes. 
So people call us exclusivists for saying Jesus is the only way, but I think God would not be God and he would not be all loving if he provided multiple ways but yet expected Jesus to die on a cross. How senseless would that be? So Jesus is arrested. He's taken before Annas. Annas was the high priest. He is not the high priest anymore because the Romans wanted to put an end to all the power and authority in the Jewish religious structure. And so what used to happen back in the day was when you were named high priest, you were high priest for life unless you, until you died. Kind of like the Supreme Court justices in our nation today, it is a life thing until you resign or until you die. So the high priest was given that authority, was given that privilege. But when the Romans got into authority, they didn't want to have the Jewish concentrate their power and authority in one person anymore because they knew it could be a contentious affair. And so what they decided to do is they said, listen, you can have a high priest, but it can't be the same one for so long. So it has, you have to change them out. There's a term of limits on your high priest. So Annas had been the high priest when Jesus was a kid. He, uh, he was a high priest from about 6 AD to 15 AD. And so this is while Jesus was growing up in Nazareth, before Jesus went out on his ministry and gathered his disciples. By the time Jesus gets to the crucifixion, he's now having uh, gone through the Last Supper, he's been arrested, he's now standing trial in front of Annas, who is not the high priest, but holds the power. Annas' brother, or brother-in-law, son-in-law, is now the high priest. Did you know that Annas' four sons were also high priests at one time? It's a family business. Sounds like the mob. That's what was going on. Annas, then his sons, and now Caiaphas, his son-in-law. Do you think there's something squirrely going on here? So this is where we pick up the story. Inside, the high priest began asking Jesus questions. Now, they're referring to Annas as the high priest because it's like referring to the president of the United States, uh, Bill Clinton and several others that are still alive. We still call them President Clinton. They, they maintain the honor of the title, though they may not have the position. So inside, the high priest began asking Jesus about his followers and what he had been teaching them. Jesus replied, everyone knows what I teach. I've preached regularly in the synagogues and in the temple where the people gather. I've not spoken in secret. Why are you asking me this question? Ask those who heard me. They know what I said. Now, Jesus is not being a smart aleck. If, we, if our kids came to us and said that, we would think they're being a smart aleck. And that's what happens next is, is uh, one of the temple guards standing nearby slapped Jesus across the face. Is that the way to answer the high priest? He demanded, is that the way you talk to your mother? Right? But you know what Jesus is doing? He's calling them out because they're not giving him a just trial. According to Jewish law, they weren't to have a trial in the darkness of night before the sun rose in the morning. This is happening early in the morning. And they were never to question the, the uh, one who was being accused directly, they would call witnesses. And so Jesus is there, there are no witnesses, and he's being confronted by the high priest. It is, they are breaking their own laws. And Jesus is saying, ask those who've heard me teach. Get witnesses, do this the right way. You really, you really wanna hold me on trial, then do it by your laws. Jesus replied, if I said anything wrong, you must prove it. But if I'm speaking the truth, why 
Why are you beating me? Then Annas bound Jesus and sent him to Caiaphas, the high priest. Skip down to verse 28. Jesus' trial before Caiaphas ended early uh, in the early hours of the morning. Then, then he was taken to the headquarters of the Roman governor. His accusers didn't go inside because it would defile them and they wouldn't be allowed to celebrate Passover. Why? Well, in Jewish culture, you were never to set foot in a Gentile home or a Gentile property. Who is a Gentile? A Gentile is anybody who isn't a Jew. Romans were Gentiles. So when they took Jesus before Pilate, who was the governor of, that, of Judea, to be judged by the Romans because they couldn't kill him themselves. The Romans had to do it. They were the only ones with the authority to execute a person. They would not go inside to take Jesus to them. They had to, the Romans had to come out and get Jesus. Think of all the religious nonsense that was going on in this picture here. They were perceived as outwardly holy by their own customs, but they were breaking every conceivable rule and law of the heart. And Jesus had been exposing that for at least three years up to this point, and they hated him for it. Don't, who are you to tell us what we're doing wrong? And when you're pointed out what you're doing wrong, what is your first response usually? If someone says, hey, you shouldn't do that, it's none of your business. It's none of this. It's not, so Jesus is calling the religious system out and the religious teaching out, not because he is not a part of this thing we call Judaism or Christianity, but because he said, you guys have missed the whole point. You've missed the mark. So they wouldn't even step foot in Pilate's residence because they were too religious for that. And then they wouldn't be able to celebrate the Passover. And that would be horrible. So Pilate, the governor, went out to them and asked, what's your charge against this man? Well, we wouldn't have handed him over to you if he weren't a criminal, they retorted. What's your charge? Is that a charge? What's the accusation? What do they have Jesus on? What did he do wrong? Well, we wouldn't have handed him over to you if he wasn't a criminal. Basically, don't ask me questions about why we're handing him over to you. Just trust us. We are trustworthy. Then take him away and judge him by your own law, Pilate told them. And then they give him this final word. Only the Romans are permitted to execute someone, the Jewish leaders replied. We're told that this fulfilled Jesus' prediction about the way he would die. So he's a criminal. We wouldn't have brought him to you if he weren't a criminal. And then they said, he's a criminal worthy of death. But they still didn't accuse him of anything that was worthy of death. So now Pilate is going to have to go back in and question Jesus himself. And this is what happens. Pilate went back to his headquarters. He called for Jesus to be brought to him who was in a holding cell. Are you the king of the Jews? He asked him. Jesus replied, is this your own question or did others tell you this about me? Now, that seems like a smart aleck response, but it's not. Because Jesus always wanted to get to the root of the issue. He didn't want to leave any stone unturned. He wanted to know, Pilate, are you really wanting to know for your sake? Or is this just a mock trial like the other one was? And Pilate 
Pilate says, am I a Jew? I mean, your own people and their leading priests brought you to me for trial. Why? What have you done? And Jesus answered, my kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. If it were, my followers would fight to keep me from being handed over to the Jewish leaders, but my kingdom isn't of this world. Ah, so you are a king, Pilate replied. Jesus responded, well, you say that I'm a king. Actually, I was born and came into the world to testify to the truth. And all who love the truth recognize that what I say is true. Now that sounds like a very arrogant response. But is it arrogant for the one who is truth to tell the truth that sets men free? If Jesus is the truth, to then say that all who listen to me hear the truth and they know it's true when I say it, is it arrogance or is it just truth? Because to say anything other than that would be a lie, wouldn't it? What is truth? Pilate asked, and then he went out again to the people and told them, he's not guilty of any crime, but you have a custom of asking me to release one prisoner each year at Passover. Would you like me to release this king of the Jews? But they shouted back, no, not this man. We want Barabbas. Well, it tells us in this one that Barabbas was a revolutionary. Actually, Barabbas was a part of a sect of Jews called the Zealots, and the Zealots would be like ISIS today. They were the ones that were planting bombs, blowing up these kinds of things. They, had, they were dagger bearers, is one of the terms they were called. They would keep daggers everywhere on their person so that they could slip into a crowd, kill somebody of power in the Roman government, and slip away really quickly. They were the ones that had the backpacks that blow up uh, people at uh, the Boston Marathon or those kind of things. That was who Barabbas was. They were revolutionaries wanting to kill the oppressive government. And the Jewish leaders and people said, no, 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 no. We don't want Jesus. Give us Barabbas. What can we learn about truth here real quickly this morning? And I will conclude quickly. I needed to give you that foundational element here. This is the point this morning. All who love the truth recognize it when they see and hear it. If you truly love the truth, then your preconceived notions and all that you've learned is always able to be tested. But people who have been indoctrinated with a semblance of the truth or what other people have told them is true can be easily dissuaded or persuaded and, and, and deceived if they don't know the real truth. This is what's happening in our colleges today. In a lot of our educational institutions, it's more indoctrination than critical thinking. I mentioned that last week. We don't teach people to think critically anymore. And what does it mean to think critically? It's simply this, take, an, take a, a theory, take, take a, a, a hypothesis, and then thoroughly test it from all sides. But a lot of us, I think, in the church don't want to test Christianity or faith in Jesus from all sides because we're worried that it might not be true. And the reason we're worried it might not be true is because we don't really know the truth. We know a facsimile of the truth. We, we know what we've been taught. But have you learned the truth and, and have you owned it? This is one of the things I tell my kids, and we go through many different discussions on this kind of stuff. You can't own your mama and daddy's truth about Jesus. It has to be yours. 
Your faith in God through Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit cannot be adopted by transmission from me. You have to own it. You have to live it. You have to believe it. And the only way to do that is to test it. Jesus never says, don't test what I'm telling you. He says, try it out. Look at it from every angle. Are you believing this because somebody else told you? Pilate, do you think I'm the king of the Jews? Or do you think somebody else told you? Or are you, you, is that just what somebody else told you? you know, what he's saying is, let's get down to brass tacks. You need to, you need to really look at all sides of this issue. Dig in, chew on it. I promise you, you will not come up empty handed. See, Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life, knows that if you believe in his truth and you've tested it and you've proven it, that you're not gonna walk away empty-handed. He believes so much in that. And truth is just that way. When you scrutinize what is really true, it will stand any test. But what's being given as truth too often is a deception of the enemy who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. And he has got us hook, line, and sinker as a culture, believing in stuff that are complete and blatant lies. That so much we've adopted in some of our denominational churches as being truth, but it's nothing more than false teaching. There's nothing new under the sun. Paul was preaching against false teaching for the majority of his letters in the New Testament. Here's the truth. This is not the truth. This is the truth. This is not the truth. This is all of Paul's letters. Check it out. And he's holding up Christ as the standard bearer of truth because Jesus is the truth against everything everybody else says is true that doesn't line up with this. So who are you gonna believe? But see, we don't like to read scripture. It's boring, it puts us to sleep. The problem is if we aren't willing to study to show ourselves approved, then we'll be duped by every, every philosophy, every single thing that comes our way. And that's what Paul that's what we learn in this first thing. The truth contrasted with Ananias and, Ananias and Sapphira. No, different passage of scripture. The truth contrasted with Annas and Caiaphas. They had their own version of the truth. They had come accustomed to their own traditions, so much so that they'd become blinded to the real truth. Annas was a bad guy. Annas was in charge Behind the scenes, when Jesus went into the temple courts and threw over the money changers' tables and drove out the merchants with the whips, you know why? Because Annas had control over the sacrifices. Here's what I mean by that. Annas, who maybe wasn't in power when Jesus threw over the, uh, the, the change, money changers' tables and drove out the merchants, Here's what they would do. So there are several courts to the Jewish temple. The outer court, the most outer court was called the court of the Gentiles. Who was allowed to come into that court? The Gentiles and anyone else who wanted to. So if you were the lowest man on the totem pole, you can come into the court of the Gentiles because they were the lowest people on the totem pole. But if you were a God-fearing Gentile, you said, I believe in the God of the Jews and I've left all the other gods, then as a Gentile, you could at least come in and worship there. And then you would have other courts. The court of the women was next. Jewish women could be in that court. Then the court of the men, then the court of the religious leaders, and then you get to the holy of holies. 
which is where God's presence supposedly resided. But in that day and age, they hadn't seen from or heard God in a long time because they had neglected the truth for centuries up to that point. So in the court of the Gentiles, Annas controls all the money. You had to change your money for the money for the temple. Do you know that? So you could offer your tithes and offerings in the temple. So if you brought in Roman money, you had to change that for temple-stamped money. That's where we get the, the mite. The mite, the Jewish, or the Jewish widow who Jesus saw, she put in two mites and she gave everything. You remember the story? That was Jewish temple currency. Now, also, there were sacrifices to be had. If you traveled, say, 20 miles to offer sacrifice during a certain time of the year, <clears throat> you can bring your own sacrifice from your own fields or one that you'd purchased in the town where you lived. But it had to be spotless and it had to be without blemish. You would bring this in, and then you would have people in the merchant section scrutinizing, scrutinizing your sacrifice, whether it was a dove or a lamb, a goat. They would be scrutinizing, and guess what? They would find an imperfection. And so what you might have purchased for pennies on the dollar, they would charge you three, four, five times more than what you purchased yours for so that you could actually make an offering in the temple. How do you think Annas made so much money? Now you have this man who's judging Jesus, who is a spotless lamb being led to the slaughter. Jesus, who is without blemish, is being accused by those who are in power and authority as being with blemish, but he has no blemish on him. And they're doing the same thing to Jesus that they were doing to the Jewish people that Jesus drove out of the court of the Gentiles when he threw over the money changer's table. He says, my father's house is to be a house of prayer. But you made it a den of robbers. Caiaphas was no better. He was just a puppet. Annas, the puppet master, controlling his son-in-law. It's kind of a sad scenario, don't you think? Caiaphas would rather keep authority and wealth rather than concede to the truth. This is the epitome of sin and pride that leads to death. The Apostle Paul rightly reminds us, and I told you I'd come to this verse. I want you to hear this very clearly. The very one who brought everything into creation, who spoke things into existence, is now standing in front of Annas and in front of Caiaphas. The very one who knit Annas and Caiaphas together in their mother's womb, who knew them by name, who created them in his image, that he's now standing in front of them, the very God of all creation. Oh, how bold we are to stand in front of God and spit in his face, but don't, don't we do that? By the way, we live our lives at times by what we believe to be true versus false. When we walk around prideful, not willing to take ownership and admit when we're wrong, we do the same thing that they do. And Paul writes this in Colossians 1 verse 15. 
through 20. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things that we can see and the things that we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, authorities, and the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. He is the glue. Truth is always the glue that holds everything together. And when the truth is gone, everything falls apart. This is what Paul's telling us. Christ alone is the head of the church, which is the body. If you go to any church that proclaims anything other than Jesus Christ is Lord as the head of the church, and he is the sole authority, then you're in the wrong church. If you go to any other church that preaches anything under than the word of God in all truth and faithfulness, be careful. You could be like a sheep sheep being led away to slaughter. He is the beginning, the supreme over all who rise from the dead. So he is first in everything. For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ and through him God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. And real quickly this morning, let's look at Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate was was questioning Jesus. He finds no fault in him, we know that, right? What, What does he do? He says, aren't you a king? Well, I was born, and here's, here's the truth. This is what I was born for, to proclaim the truth, and all who hear the truth that comes from me know that what I say is true. And what, is, what does Pilate say? Three simple words. What is truth? Do you know what he immediately does? It's not like he says, okay, Jesus, what's truth? And he says, what's truth? And then he walks away. You see, we oftentimes standing in the very presence of truth are willing to ask that question, but not willing to stay for the answer. Because either we're fearful of the answer because it means we have to change the way we live, change the way we think, maybe change the group of friends we hang out with. Maybe we have to change employment. Because what we do for a living is in contradistinction to who Christ is and what the truth really is. We don't often want to stand and hear that. Barclay, William Barclay, an author and scholar, he's passed away now, but but he wrote uh, the the Daily Study Bible series. He he proclaims, one of the few authors that I've read that proclaims that, that, that Pilate doesn't just walk away in disgust when this sarcastic, what is truth? He, he gets this picture of Pilate based on what we know of Pilate in the scripture. Now, Pilate was a hardened man. He was not fair. If you look at any historical record of Pilate, he was a brutal dictator of a guy. He played by the rules, but he was still stern. He was hard. 
but we get a picture of Pilate that's not soft, if you will, but one that really wants to know what is truth. Because think of what he's lived through. He's a military professional. He's seen bloodshed on the battlefields. He's seen uh, upheavals in local communities. He's had to rule with an iron fist. And when you've done all of that, you know some of these military uh, personnel that come back from war-torn areas that go through post-traumatic stress syndrome, they are asking the same question. I've seen things that nobody else should see. And now I'm even questioning the realities of what it means to live in peace and prosperity. So now put yourself in Pilate's shoes. He's standing before a man that he can't find anything against. And he's seen enough bloodshed. He's seen enough injustice. He doesn't want to put Jesus to death. But when he asks the question, it's as if he's weary. After years of going through the pain and the torment of seeing chaos and death, and now we're going to put another guy to death. For what? And you say you know the truth. What is truth? And he walks away because he's never experienced real, unadulterated truth in his life. Not expecting Jesus to even have an answer, he walks away and he misses an opportunity to hear from the very God who created him what the true answer to truth really is. I close with this. Being truthful when you know it will cost you is the truest test of honesty. So what is truth this morning? Our worship team's gonna come forward and close this out here in a minute. I'm gonna go ahead and call them up. What is truth? You may be asking that. You may have asked that through some of the most tough times of your life. What is truth? Well, Jesus is truth, and it seems too simple. You're like, there's gotta be more to it than that. It's gotta be an equation like E equals MC squared, right? It's gotta have some confounding principle behind it. Well, Jesus is the truth. And to know the truth that can set you free is to know this man we call Jesus. And the only way to know this man who lived 2,000 years ago, who died on a cross, and we believe rose from the grave because there are enough testimonies of this, not only from his own people, but from people from outside of the church. To believe in that truth is to believe in the word. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He became flesh. He dwelt among us. You and I find our existence in him, through him, and for him, Paul says. Everything is in perfect order that he holds control over. And some of you have disorder in your lives. And that's not to say you will be exempt from the pains of this life or suffering, but what it does say, you can be in complete order internally, spiritually, emotionally, with God the Father through Jesus Christ, even though the world around you rages. You can rise above the waves and walk on the water only through the power of Jesus as you keep your eyes fixed on him. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through him.
And that's not a way to hurt us or harm us, but it's really a way to set us free from the wiles of the enemy who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy your joy, your faith, your hope in humanity and the rest of, the, and the rest of life. So this morning, as you stand, as we begin to close, I make this plea, it seems like every week, and you probably get sick and tired of hearing me make this plea, but if you don't know the truth, if you don't know freedom, if you don't know liberty, It's as, it's, it's as simple as one step in the direction of Christ. He has made every step from heaven to earth to the cross through the empty tomb. He's made a million steps for you. Can you make one step for him? No, Brandon, I just can't give this up or I can't give that up. It's too hard. You don't know what I'm going through. No, but Jesus does. He's acquainted with our griefs and sorrows. And this morning, my prayer for you is that you don't step through the threshold of those doors to leave and just say, wow, great service, or wow, horrible service. But you say, this is a place where I met with God and he changed everything for me for the better. Let's pray. Father, we give you glory, honor, and praise. We surrender to you the way, the truth, and the life. Forgive us of our sins. Don't cast us away from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from us. For those of us that know you, restore to us the joy of your salvation and renew a right spirit within us. But for those of you that are here that don't know you personally, that haven't come to this place of surrendering their life to you in belief and following, I pray that you would break through that hardened heart break through the difficult questions and show them the reality of the truth who is your son, Jesus Christ. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's Word. Make sure to visit us on our website at www.northmaincog.org where you can learn more about us. While you're at it, go ahead and subscribe to our podcast. And if you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that'd be helpful too. If you'd like to donate to the ongoing ministry of North Main, go to www.northmaincog.org and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Again, thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.